0: Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. Well, Canadians in two of the country's largest cities are preparing to go back into lockdown tomorrow. That comes as COVID-19 cases continue to break daily records across the country. Dr. Theresa Tam warned Canadians that if they continue to increase their contacts, cases could skyrocket upwards of 60,000 a day. Joining me now to talk about the second wave of COVID and Canada's path forward is former health minister and dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences at Queen's University Dr. Jane Philpott. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Philpott. Uh, You know, some really Stark news that came down on Friday. Hearing from the federal government, we could be expecting 60,000 cases a day uh, if we continue down the current path and continue to expand our contacts. Toronto and Peel moving into lockdown tomorrow. Uh, Tough, tough news for a lot of folks out there. And there's this big debate about whether the best way to deal with the exploding case numbers is lockdowns. Is that, in your view, the best way to plank the curve?
1: Well, Mercedes, thank you for having me on and this is I think a, a sobering time for us all. We are at a tipping point. There's no question. And the announcements that came out on Friday laid it out very clear for us, clearly for us in terms of what the modeling shows and how bad things could get. But this is actually in our hands, this is in the hands of all the people across the country, uh, as to the extent that they can possibly manage, uh, and not everybody can, but to the extent that everybody can stay at home, can follow the guidelines, can make sure that they do not increase their social contacts, then those worst case scenarios won't happen. But we are at the tipping point. People had to take drastic action. Some very serious measures were announced across the country, and I can certainly speak to those here in Ontario. Those are hard decisions for governments to make, but they had to be made because we've got to get this thing under control before it reaches those worst-case scenarios.
0: Do you think that some of those decisions should have been made sooner? I know there's been some criticism of Ontario Premier Doug Ford by some of the City of Toronto officials who wanted to see restrictions earlier.
1: Well, as I say, I, I, I will not be one of those who pretends that it's easy for anybody who is a policymaker who's in a, a leadership position across the country right now for, for them, the decisions that they have to make because they are going to hear voices from all sides, but what we're able to do now is make those more precise uh specifications so you're looking at in ontario where toronto and peel are unfortunately areas where the uh, the spread has been quite marked and they're the ones that have to do the shutdown right now for the sake of everyone. You know, of course, there are some people that have to keep working and it's hard for them. I, you know, I think we need to continue to give a shout out to those people who still make sure that there's food on the table for us. Uh, and some people do have to go to work. I think about healthcare professionals who have to go to work and the personal support workers who are there making sure that people get the care that they need. Not everything is possible for everyone to be able to stay home, but uh, those decisions had to be made in order that we can go forward. We've got several months to go yet till we get to the point that that vaccine is on the horizon. We've got to do the hard work now and we've got to do it together.
0: Uh, Dr. Philpott, I know that you are running a a very important data project for the government of Ontario when it comes to COVID-19. Why do you think it is that, this far into the pandemic, we still really don't have clear data on where the spread is happening, or we don't have public numbers either on where people are being hospitalized, why people are dying of the disease or dying of it, details of of who gets the sickest and who is the most vulnerable? Because some critics are saying, without that kind of good data, you can't make good policy. So to
1: a certain extent, Mercedes, we are paying the price for the uh, lack of investments for a very, very long time in this country and the uh, data jungle that's out there in the health world, you know, we've got uh, an inability of provinces to be able to share data in the same kind of standardized methodology in a province like Ontario, we've got 34 different health units that are all reporting their data in slightly different ways. You know, I think that there's been progress made, certainly the work that we're doing on the Ontario Health Data Platform is helping to move people in the direction of standardizing what that data looks like. I think Ontario has, for the most part, been pretty forthcoming in terms of making sure that that data is as open as possible, but it it has been extremely hard for people to be able to make decisions. Uh, Thankfully, the Ontario Health Data Platform will help on that as it continues to, uh, to be able to gather the data and be able to provide provide more rapid results, but our lack of investments in public health for a long time and the continued siloing of health systems across this country are some of the reasons that we haven't been able to get the kind of information that we've needed up until now.
0: Well, and uh, I read the report that you authored when you were the health minister warning that we were unprepared for a pandemic. So, so there was some awareness at some level of government about this and whether or not more should be done. At this point, they just have to move forward. So I'm curious to know what you think of Canada's vaccine orders. Do we have enough? Are you convinced that we will be able to distribute it appropriately? And who do you think should get the vaccine first?
1: Well, in that area, I can say that I think there's been some very good work being done. There are some really smart people that are trying to make those decisions around who should get the the vaccine first. And, you know, this is not the first time that we've gone through an exercise like this a number of years ago when there was a a flu outbreak we went through the exercise of trying to identify which populations are most at risk and I'm happy to say that from what I'm seeing here in Ontario that there is work being done ahead of time so that as that vaccine rollout comes that we'll uh, know who should get it and distribute it it's going to be difficult because we will not be able to get enough for everyone immediately But we must address those who are most vulnerable we know that older people are of course the most vulnerable health workers need to be able to continue to provide health and they're putting themselves literally in the line of of danger every day when those especially those who are working uh, directly uh, with the uh, COVID patients so those answers are relatively clear and it's going to require patience and a real attitude of looking out for one another and trying to realize that as we, as we address those vulnerable populations and continue with the public health measure, measures, we will gradually start to find a way forward in this.
0: Do you think that if we'd had a higher testing capacity or the rapid at-home testing and more capacity to contact trace, we could have mitigated how bad the second wave is becoming?
1: Well, you know, I I think about twenty twenty in hindsight, and um, you know, we will we will continue to analyze this over and over again for for a long time to come. And there's lots of things that that we should have done uh, differently in the early days. And uh, you know, it's a, it's a naive person who thinks that they had all of the answers uh, right up front. Uh, you know. We, of course, we should have done more testing in the early days. We should have shut things down more. We've learned a lot. People have had the humility to adapt, to to pivot, as they say, uh, to be able to change direction and, and and become wiser. The testing, tracing, and isolating piece has been uh, perhaps the part that's been the most disappointing uh, across. Uh, you know, I think safe to say across the country. Although we see in certain areas where there's particular expertise and ability to be able to do that well uh, when before things get overwhelmed. And we need to get to a place to get those numbers down low again so that the test, trace, and isolate will be much more effective and public health units will have
0: the capacity to do it. Do you think that's a job for the federal government?
1: So... <laughs> everybody has a job to do in this. And no one should be pointing fingers at one another. They should all be recognizing the authorities that they have, using them to the maximum ability that they have, and collaborating with others. And that's where I think we're seeing a little bit of challenge. There's a lot of finger pointing going on, which doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily helpful. Uh, but there is a role for the federal government to have that national leadership, to look at things like national data standards, to put in place measures that will require provinces, for example, to be able to re- report their data data uh, to the government to be able to do the work on supply chain to be able to uh, incent investments in areas like long-term care so there's no question that in a public health emergency like this the federal government has a role to play provincial governments of course have an even one could argue an even bigger role to play in terms of the delivery of health care and that uh, day-to-day enactment of of public health uh, measures but Canadians have a role to play in this too. And that's the important part is that it's actually on all of us. It's on all of us to, to look to the interests of one another, to, to, to rally together in the face of the threat amongst us. And uh, I think if we all work together in that kind of spirit of mutual aid and collaboration, we'll do a lot better.
0: Dr. Philpott, thank you so much for joining us. And please take care of yourself. You
1: too. Stay well.
0: Canada's northern territories have largely avoided major outbreaks of COVID-19 throughout the pandemic. But last week, Nunavut saw a spike like never before. The territory is under lockdown now to try to stop the spread. And the Premier has sounded the alarm. He actually is here to talk to us right now about that subject and the next steps that will be taken for Nunavut. Premier Joe Savikata, thanks for joining us.
2: All right, first I'll just explain a little bit about Nunavut. It's one-third the land mass of Canada. We have 25 remote communities and all of them are fly-in only. We have no roads in Nunavut. You cannot go to another community without hopping on an airplane and uh, getting to the other community. So just in that context there, we're quite remote. And currently we have uh, COVID in four communities.
0: Do you have a sense that you think you have this under control or is it still spreading?
2: Uh, the one in uh, the first uh, community that had COVID was Sanikiloa, and originally they had two cases, and it's been almost two weeks, and they still only have two, two cases. Sorry, and uh, Dr. Patterson, our chief public health officer, has said that 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 uh, it's considered just about considered contained because yeah, there's been no uh, no other uh, cases there. For uh, Rankin Inlet and Will Cove, there is no community spread there, but for Alviate, uh, there is community spread there, and, and that's where most of our cases are currently, right now
0: you've had isolation centers in place for months so that people who are coming into your territory isolate there for two weeks to prevent the spread. It still has gotten out. So I'm wondering what you think of BC Premier John Horgan's proposal that interprovincial travel should cease to stop the spread of COVID. Do, Do you think that's the solution?
2: Well, here within Nunavut, we don't recommend any unnecessary travel right now at all. So I don't know if it's a solution, but ours, it is uh, It is one of the tools we have here to keep the COVID from going to other communities. And our recommendation is if you don't have to travel, please don't travel to another community. Uh, we've had isolation hubs for quite a while. And uh, I believe that has helped us uh, prolong the when COVID came here. All the members that did uh, get COVID, They did do the 14 days, so we're looking at uh, if, just to see how that happened.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people wondering how that happened, if you've got the two-week isolation. But I do want to touch uh, on the choices of other premiers, because they affect your province, including and in particular Manitoba, where I believe some of these cases have been contact traced back to. You've made the very difficult decision to go into a lockdown. That is really hard, especially somewhere like your territory, which already has economic challenges. Do you think that other premiers are moving fast enough and aggressively enough? Do you think there should be more provincial laws? lockdowns across Canada?
2: I'll leave that to each premier uh, to make that decision. Each premier knows their province and it's not my place to say what each premier should do in their province. But here in Nunavut, we have taken the steps to lock down Nunavut for two weeks to make sure that it does not spread. And Dr. Patterson said after 14 days, if there's no other communities that are getting COVID, then he can start easing restrictions in some of the communities or some of the regions. But that is a choice that we have made here to stop the spread of COVID because we have uh, we have underlying issues here that makes makes our population very vulnerable. And it has shown that it if it takes a foothold in the community, it can spread because you may not know you have uh, COVID and you may be spreading it. And that's one of the fears we've always had. And we've always uh, predicted that when COVID came here that there's chances that there could be uh, exponentially growth and that has happened in one community in Narvaeh.
0: One of the things that we hear from public health officials is a vaccine could help to alleviate this also rapid testing. I know you recently spoke with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Has he given you any assurances that your territory will be prioritized to receive the vaccine first or to receive those rapid tests first?
2: First, I'd like to uh, thank the Prime Minister for all the help that uh, his government has given us. I just spoke to him a few days ago and he assured us that uh, we are on top priority here and we have asked for rapid uh, testing capability in our isolation hubs so that we could test people before they come up, the rapid testing units. And uh, we have been assured that uh, we are a top priority due to our, our situation here and our vulnerability. So uh, I'd like to thank the Prime Minister again for keeping us uh, in his thoughts and that uh, he said he's there to help if and when we ask for any uh, help.
0: Do, do you think uh, you have a sense of, of how many of those vaccines you might get when they're available? I know it's been a big topic of discussion. Ontario's saying they want 40%. Do you know where you are on the list in terms of how many you might be seeing?
2: No, we're not. Uh, I, I have no idea and uh, we're not at that level of uh, discussion yet of how many we'd get or when we get them. We just know that uh, We'd be prioritized to too, but uh, in terms of uh, the numbers we'd get, to have, we don't have that.
0: Okay, Premier, thank you so much for joining us today, and we wish you the best.
2: Uh, thank you very much for having me on your show, and you have a good weekend.
0: Up next, the future of Canada-U.S. relations, an interview with Senator Chris Coons. Hey, it's Mercedes. On behalf of our entire team here at the West Block, thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We'll get to the next segment in just a few moments, but if you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a review, give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and tell your friends.
2: We're moving along uh, knowing what the outcome will be. And uh, um, as I said earlier, I probably shouldn't repeat it, but I find this uh, more embarrassing for the country than debilitating for my ability to get started.
0: That was President-elect Joe Biden on how he'll be ready for the Oval Office on day one of his term despite his predecessor, who still won't concede. Like almost everything in 2020, the U.S. presidential election was nothing short of, well, unprecedented. Top of mind for many, though, is how the transition of power will go. Will the president finally accept defeat? What will Biden's first priorities be? And how does Canada fit into all of that? These are questions that, quite frankly, many don't have the answer to, but if anyone would, it's my next guest who comes to us from Biden's old Senate seat, Delaware. Chris Coons is one of the names being floated as a potential Secretary of State for the Biden administration. It's circulating pretty heavily through the rumor mill, and he's expected to have a significant role, whatever it is. But if he's the Secretary of State, he will advise Biden on all things foreign affairs and play a key role in Canada-U.S. relations. So without further ado, here is Senator Coons. Senator, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you, Mercedes. It's great to be with you on West Block.
0: You know, people have been anxiously watching the American election results up here in Canada, including President Trump's Twitter feeds and various campaign press conferences. Why do you think it is that we haven't seen uh, more condemnation of of what the president has been saying, both by senior Republicans and senior Democrats?
3: Well, Mercedes, um, the condemnation of uh, President Trump's refusal to accept the outcome of the election uh, has been fairly uniform and fairly loud across senior Democrats. Um, It is a real challenge uh, to my working relationship with a number of senior Republicans in the Senate um, that they're not being clear, that they're not standing up and saying uh, it is past time for a transition to begin. A few have said so, uh, but in the interest of public health and the interest of our national security, um, it is past time for the transfer of information to begin, um, even as President Trump and his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, uh, continue to pursue long-shot legal challenges Um, there is a vanishingly small chance of any of them succeeding. And so the transition should be well underway.
0: At what point do you think senior Republicans stop backing the president?
3: Uh, I've been trying to get an answer to that in personal conversations with colleagues in the Senate. Um, I think we're a matter of a week away because the states are beginning to certify the outcome of their elections. And that means there is no further uh, review or recount possible once they certify their elections, the last conceivable date would be December 14th when our College of Electors meets. Um, but you know, frankly, every day that we are delaying is a day um, that puts at greater risk our public health and our national security.
0: Senator, as you know, Canada has two citizens being held in China. Uh, the Canadian government has referred to them as being taken hostage as a result of having arrested Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Huawei, here in Canada on an American warrant. What do you expect a Biden relationship with China to look like? Because a lot of folks think you might be the Secretary of State.
3: Well, Mercedes, to be clear, I'm speaking with you today as a senator. I am a currently serving a uh, member of the Foreign Relations Committee, not as a member of the transition team. Um, and I'm honored that I'm being mentioned. I think, uh, first, that we are deeply grateful um, to our trusted partners in Canada uh, for respecting um, the concerns raised by the United States in this warrant, um, and for the ways in which uh, this has challenged the Canadian-Chinese uh, relationship. Um, the Chinese uh, response, uh, arresting without real basis in fact or law uh, to Canadian citizens, Um, is just one more step um, that shows how under Xi Jinping, uh, China's become more aggressive, not just regionally, but globally. Uh, They don't respect intellectual property. They don't respect the rule of law. They frankly um, have colored outside the lines of the international system for far too long. Um, President-elect Biden sees clearly the challenges that all of us uh, who represent free societies, open market uh, democracies, the challenge that we face from China, uh, and I believe he'll pull our partners and our allies uh, closer together uh, to come up with a coordinated strategy. President Trump's uh, tariff policies haven't just um, combated Chinese innovation mercantilism, haven't just tried to reset the table with China. Um, they've actually harmed our partners and allies. Uh, and Canada and Canadians have uh, effectively conveyed uh, to those of us in the Senate um, the ways in which it has strained our relationship. And I would expect that President-elect Biden will move quickly Um, to address some of those strains uh, and to weave back more tightly uh, our close partnership with Canada.
0: Do you think that might include dropping the extradition request for Meng Wanzhou, or would it look more like uh, President Biden, pardon me, President-elect Biden, uh, pushing harder on China to release the two Michaels?
3: Look, I can't speak um, with any confidence about the President-elect's position. I will say that if it were up to me, uh, I would be pressing harder on the Chinese to release uh, these two Canadians who are held without cause, Um, and frankly, to consult closely uh, with Prime Minister Trudeau, um, someone who I view as a close and trusted ally uh, and who I believe will enjoy a very good relationship with President-elect Biden. Um, But you know, frankly, in consultation with a partner and ally, uh, we'd be asking, uh, the President-elect would be asking exactly what is in Canada's best interest as well as what's in United States best interest.
0: Up next, more of my interview with Senator Chris Coons. One of the biggest issues of course for Canada is trade and under President Trump we had a tariffs applied to us, national security tariffs, a number of times. There's no suggestion that President-elect Biden will do that, but he has talked extensively about Buy America. So what assurances does Canada have that a Biden presidency will respect what was renegotiated in NAFTA 2.0 and that Canada will not be harmed by that Buy America stance?
3: Uh, I deeply respect and support President-elect Biden's position that uh, as we Uh, build back better the American economy, we should focus where we can, federal purchasing and procurement, uh, on American source. Um, But we did just conclude the USNCA, or as you put it, NAFTA 2.0. It had broad bipartisan support in the Congress, uh, and we should not be disadvantaging our Canadian partners or violating our USNCA commitments um, while trying to strengthen our own economy. Uh, We are part of an integrated North American economic system Um, and we shouldn't be doing things that go out of our way to harm our Canadian partners uh, in our effort to recover from this pandemic and the recession.
0: Senator Coons, I I know you have a lot of experience in the Senate and in dealing with Canada, especially when we were going through the difficulties with the United States over uh, the tariffs that we were facing. How has that experience informed your view of where Canada-U.S. relations need to go?
3: Well, I had a a memorable encounter as a senator uh, where the former um, foreign minister, Foreign Minister Freeland, um, came to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, and she delivered in as measured and diplomatic and responsible a way as possible an extremely forceful message about the ways in which these national security-based tariffs on steel and aluminum uh, being exported from Canada to the United States were an insult and were a harm to our relationship. Um, and I've never forgotten walking out in the hallway afterwards and saying to two of my colleagues, one Republican, one Democrat, did you hear that? Did you hear that? The foreign minister of one of our closest, most trusted allies just delivered a scathing rebuke. She was pounding on the table and demanding that we change course. And they sort of looked at me and said, I heard nothing of the sort. I said, exactly, because she was being Canadian. She was being respectful and thoughtful and diplomatic. but..." Imagine if she'd instead like jumped up on the table and kicked over the coffee urn and yelled at us, would you have heard her then? And they're like, oh yes, oh, we would have noticed that. I said, please recognize that our our just, our incredibly trusted close ally who has been with us through thick and thin is trying to get us a clear message. These tariffs must be reversed. So um, I have tried at times um, successfully, at times unsuccessfully to translate um, from Canadian to American English, um, the messages that we've uh, heard and I'm, I will be doing my level best to make sure that they are heard uh, in the year to come.
0: A lot of folks think uh, cancelling Keystone XL, the pipeline would fall into that. That is one of the President-elect's prime promises that he will cancel that pipeline. Uh, could be very, very damaging to Alberta. Do you think that he is going to follow through with that promise? I know the Canadian government is going to be lobbying hard for him not to.
3: Um, I think I'm gonna have to leave that to um, serious and and, uh, earnest and prompt negotiations between the incoming administration um, and the Canadian government, um, rather than my saying on a Sunday show what I believe will be the right thing for him to do. Um, But that's gonna be a tough relationship moment for us. Um, The tar sands of Canada um, have contained within them an enormous amount of energy. uh, And I recognize that both Canada and the United States as energy exporters Um, have a role to play in contributing to energy security. Um, But we also have to be mindful uh, of the ways in which uh, a coordinated strategy to combat climate um, is also an urgent priority for both of our nations, because climate is an existential threat. The challenge to addressing climate is to find ways that we can do so without also harming uh, our economies and our competitiveness. And I've worked in a bipartisan way with Republicans Uh, in the United States Senate to come up with strategies that can allow us to do that, um, principally by starting uh, with embracing changes in our agriculture sector, uh, as well as transportation uh, and building spaces. So I'll be supporting what the Biden administration does in this, um, but I do think it begins by negotiating closely with a trusted partner.
0: Hmm, Tough relationship moment. I think that uh, there may be a few folks in the Canadian government taking note of that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Senator Coons. We appreciate your time.
3: Thank you, Mercedes.
0: Well, there you have it, this week's episode of the West Block podcast. Look, with the number of COVID-19 cases continuing to rise, the next couple of weeks might be pretty tough for some of us, in fact, likely for all of us. So on behalf of our entire team over here at the West Block, please stay safe, take care of yourselves and each other.